Chapter 4 Marjorie was still in bed when the news was brought her by a friend. She did not move or speak when Mistress Alice said shortly that Mr. Fitzherbert had been taken with ten of his servants and two priests. "'You understand, my dear, they have ridden away to Derby, all of them together, but they may come back here suddenly.' Marjorie nodded. "'Mr. Garlick and Mr. Ludlam were in the chimney-hole of the hall,' whispered Mistress Alice, glancing fearfully behind her. Marjorie lay back again on her pillows. "'And what of Mr. Albin?' she asked. "'Mr. Albin was upstairs. They missed him. He is coming here after dark,' the maid says." An hour after supper-time the priest came quietly upstairs to the parlour. He showed no signs of his experience, except perhaps by a certain brightness in his eyes and an extreme self-repression of manner. Marjorie was up to meet him, and had in her hands a paper. She hardly spoke a single expression of relief at his safety. She was as quiet and businesslike as ever. "'You must lie here tonight,' she said. "'Janet hath your room ready. At one o'clock in the morning you must ride. Here is a map of your journey. They may come back suddenly.' At the place I have marked here with red, there is a shepherd's hut. You cannot miss it if you follow the track I have marked. There will be meat and drink there. At night the shepherd will come from the westwards. He is called David, and you may trust him. You must lie there two weeks at least. I must have news of the other priests, he said. Marjorie bowed her head. I will send a letter to you by Dick Sampson at the end of two weeks. Until that I can promise nothing. They may have spies round the house by this time tomorrow, or even earlier, and I will send in that letter any news I can get from Derby. How shall I find my way? asked Robin. Until it is light, you will be on ground that you know. She flushed slightly. Do you remember the hawking that time after Christmas? It is all across that ground. When daylight comes, you can follow this map. She named one or two landmarks, pointing to them on a map. You must have no lantern. They talked a few minutes longer as to the way he must go and the provision that would be ready for him. He must take no mass requisites with him. David had made that a condition. Then Robin suddenly changed the subject. Had my father any hand in this affair at Padley? I am certain he had not. They will execute Mr. Garlick and Mr. Ludlam, will they not? She bowed her head in assent. The summer assizes open on the 18th, she said. There is no doubt as to how all will go. Robin rose. It is time I were in bed, he said, if I must ride at one. The two women knelt for his blessing. At one o'clock Marjorie heard the horse brought round. She stepped softly to the window, knowing herself to be invisible, and peeped out. All was as she had ordered. There was no light of any kind. She could make out but dimly in the summer darkness the two figures of horse and groom. As she looked, a third figure appeared beneath, but there was no word spoken that she could hear. This third figure mounted. She caught her breath as she heard the horse scurry a little with freshness, since every sound seemed full of peril. Then the mounted figure faded one way into the dark, and the groom another. It was two weeks to the day that Robin received his letter. He had never been so long in utter solitude, for the visits of David did not break it, and, for other men, he saw none except a hog herd or two in the distance once or twice. The shepherd came but once a day, carrying a great jug and a parcel of food, and set them down without the hut. He seemed to avoid even looking within, but merely took the empty jug of the day before and went away again. He was an old, bent man, with a face like a limestone cliff, grey and weather-beaten. He lived half the year up here in the wild peak country, caring for a few sheep, and going down to the village not more than once or twice a week. There was a little spring welling up in a hollow not fifty yards away from the hut, which itself stood in a deep, natural rift among the hills, so that men might search for it a lifetime and not come across it. Robin's daily round was very simple. He had leave to make a fire by day, but he must extinguish it at night lest its glow should be seen. So he began his morning by mixing a little oatmeal and then preparing his dinner. About noon, so near as he could judge by the sun, he dined, 
sometimes off a partridge or a rabbit, on Fridays off half a dozen tiny trout, and set aside part of the cold food for supper. He had one good loaf of nearly black bread every day and the single jug of small beer. The greater part of the day he spent within the hut for safety's sake, sleeping a little and thinking a good deal. He had no books with him. Even his breviary had been forbidden, since David, as a shrewd man, had made conditions, first, that he should not have to speak with any refugee, second, that if the man were a priest, he should have nothing about him that could prove him to be so. Mr. Maine's beads only had been permitted, on condition that they were hidden always beneath a stone outside the hut. After nightfall, Robin went out to attend to his horse that was tethered in the next ravine, over a crag, to shift his peg and bring him a good armful of cut grass and a bucket of water. The saddle and bridle were hidden beneath a couple of great stones that leaned together not far away. After doing what was necessary for his horse, he went to draw water for himself, and then took his exercise, avoiding carefully, according to instructions, every possible skyline. And it was then, for the most part, that he did his clear thinking. He tried to fancy himself in a fortnight's retreat, such as he had had at Rheims before his reception of orders. The evening of the 25th of July closed in stormy, and Robin, in an old cloak he had found placed in the hut for his own use, made haste to attend to what was necessary, and hurried back as quickly as he could. He sat a while, listening to the thresh of the rain and the cry of the wind, for up here in the highland the full storm broke on him. The hut was waddled of osiers and clay and kept out the wet tolerably well. He could see nothing from the door of his hut except the dim outline of the nearer crag thirty or forty yards off, and he went presently to bed. He awoke suddenly, wide awake, as is easy for a man who was sleeping in continual expectation of an alarm, at the flash of light in his eyes, but he was at once reassured by Dick's voice. "'I have come, sir, and I have brought the mistress's letter.' Robin sat up and took the packet. He saw now that the man carried a little lantern with a slide over it that allowed only a thin funnel of light to escape that could be shut off in an instant. "'All well, Dick? I did not hear you coming.' "'The storm's too loud, sir.' "'All well?' Mistress Manners thinks you had best stay here a week longer, sir. And, and the news? It's all in the letter, sir. Robin looked for the inscription, but there was none. Then he broke the two seals, opened the paper, and began to read. For the next five minutes there was no sound except the thresh of the rain and the cry of the wind. The letter ran as follows. Three more have glorified God today by a good confession. Mr. Garlick, Mr. Ludlam, and Mr. Simpson. That is the summary. The tale in detail has been brought to me today by an eyewitness. The trial went as all thought it would. There was never the least question of it, for not only were the two priests taken with signs of their calling upon them, but both of them had been in the hands of the magistrates before. There was no shrinking nor fear showed of any kind. But the chief marvel was that these two priests met with Mr. Simpson in the jail. They put them together in one room, I think, hoping that Mr. Simpson would prevail upon them to do as he had promised to do. But by the grace of God it was all the other way, and it was they who prevailed upon Mr. Simpson to confess himself again openly as a Catholic. This greatly enraged my lord Shrewsbury and the rest, so that there was less hope than ever of any respite, and sentence was passed upon them altogether, Mr. Simpson showing, at the reading of it, as much courage as any. This was all done two days ago at the Assizes, and it was today that the sentence was carried out. They were all three drawn on hurdles together to the open space by St. Mary's Bridge, where all was prepared, with gallows and cauldron and butchering block, and a great company went after them. I have not heard that they spoke much on the way, except that a friend of Mr. Garlick's cried out to him to remember that they had often shot off together on the moors, to which Mr. Garlick made answer merrily that it was true, but that, quote, I am now to shoot off such a shot as I never shot in all my life. He was merry at the trial, too, I hear, and said that, quote, he was not come to seduce men, but rather to induce them to the Catholic religion, that to this end he had come to the country, and for this that he would work so long as he lived. And this he did on the scaffold, speaking to the crowd about him of the salvation of their souls, and casting papers which he had written in prison in proof of the Catholic faith. 
Mr. Garlick went up the ladder first, kissing and embracing it as the instrument of his death, and to encourage Mr. Simpson, as it was thought, since some said he showed signs of timorousness again when he came to the place. But he showed none when his turn came, but rather exhibited the same courage as them both. Mr. Ludlam stood by smiling while all was done, and smiling still when his turn came. His last words were, Venite benedicti Dei, and this he said, seeming to see a vision of angels come to bear his soul away. They were cut down, all three of them, before they were dead, and the butchery done on them according to sentence. Yet none of them cried out or made the least sound, and their heads and quarters were set up immediately afterwards on poles in diverse places of derby, some of them above the house that stands on the bridge and others on the bridge itself. But these, I hear, will not be there long. So these three have kept the faith and finished their course with joy, Laus Deo. Mr. John is in ward for harboring of the priests, but nothing hath been done to him yet. As for your reverence, I am of opinion that you had best wait another week where you are. There has been a man or two seen hereabouts whom none knew, as well as at Padley. It hath been certified, too, that Mr. Thomas was at the root of it all, that he gave the information that Mr. John and at least a priest or two would be at Padley at that time, though no man knows how he knew it, unless through servants' talk. And since Mr. Thomas knows your reverence, it will be better to be hid for a little longer. So, if you will, in a week from now, I will send Dick once again to tell you if all be well. I look for no letter back for this, since you have nothing to write with in the hut, as I know. But Dick will tell me how you do, as well as anything you may choose to say to him. I ask your reverence's blessing again. I do not forget your reverence in my poor prayers. And so it ended, without signature, for safety's sake. Robin looked up when he had finished, to where the faint outline of the servant could be seen behind the lantern, against the greater darkness of the wall. You know of all that has fallen at Derby? He said with some difficulty. Yes, sir. Well, pray God we may be willing too, if he bids us to it. Yes, sir. You had best lose no time if you are to be home before dawn. Say to Mistress Manners that I thank her for her letter, that I praise God for the graces she relates in it, and that I will do as she bids. Dick? Yes, sir. Is Mr. Audrey in any of this? I do not know, sir. I heard... The man's voice hesitated. What did you hear? I heard that my Lord Shrewsbury wondered at his absence from the trial, and, and that a message would be sent to Mr. Audrey to look to it to be more zealous on Her Grace's commission. That was all? Yes, sir. Then you had best be gone. There is no more to be said. Bring me what news you can when you come again. Good night, Dick. Good night, sir. God bless your reverence. An hour later, with the first coming of the dawn, the storm ceased. It was that same storm, if he had only known it, that had blown upon the Spanish fleet at sea and driven it towards destruction but of this he knew nothing. He had not slept since Dick had gone, but had lain on his back on the turfed and blanketed bed in the corner, his hands clasped behind his head, thinking, thinking, and rethinking all that he had read just now. He had known it must happen, but there seemed to him all the difference in the world between an event and its mere certainty. The thing was done, out to every bitter detail of the loathsome, agonizing death, and it had been two of the men whom he had seen say mass after himself, the ruddy-faced, breezy countryman, yet anointed with the sealing oil, and the gentle, studious, smiling man who had been no less vigorous than his friend. But there was one thing he had not known, and that, the recovery of the faint heart which they had inspirited. And then, in an instant, he remembered how he had seen the three, years ago, against the sunset, as he rode with Anthony. His mind was full of the strange memory as he came out at last, when the black darkness began to fade to grey, and the noise of the rain on the roof had ceased, and the wind had fallen. It was a view of extraordinary solemnity that he looked on, as he stood leaning against the rough doorpost. The night was still stronger than day, overhead was as black as ever, and stars shone in it through the dissolving clouds that were passing at last. But immediately over the grim, serrated edge of the crag that faced him to the east, a faint and tender light was beginning to burn, so faint that as yet it seemed an absence of black rather than as of a color itself. 
and in the midst of it, like a crumb of diamond, shone a single dying star. This highland was as still now as a sheltered valley. A tuft of springy grass stood out on the crag as stiff as a thin plume, and the silence, as at Padley two weeks ago, was marked rather than broken by the tinkle of water from his spring fifty yards away. The air was cold and fresh and marvelously scented after the rain with the clean smell of strong turf and rushes. It was as different from the peace he had had at Padley as water is different from wine, yet it was peace too, a confident and expectant peace that precedes the battle, rather than the rest which follows it. How was it he had seen the three men on the moor as he turned with Anthony? They were against the crimson west, as against the glory, the two laymen on either side, the young priest in the middle. They had seemed to bear him up and support him. The color of the sky was as a stain of blood, and their shadows had stretched to his own feet. And there came on him in that hour one of those vast experiences that can never be told, when a flood rises in earth and air that turns them all to wine, that wells up through tired limbs and puzzled brain and beating heart, and soothes and enkindles all in one when it is not a mere vision of peace that draws the eyes up in an ecstasy of sight, but a bathing in it, and an envelopment in it, of every fiber of life, when the lungs draw deep breaths of it, and the heart beats in it, and the eyes are enlightened by it, when the things of earth become at once eternal and fixed and of infinite value, and at the same instant of less value than the dust that floats in space, when there no longer appears any distinction between the finite and the eternal, between time and infinity, when the soul for that moment at least finds that rest that is the magnet and the end of all human striving, and that comfort which wipes away all tears. <laughs>